Hey everybody, just a quick note at the top of the show. Excited to have the Trojan Talk podcast back on the now weekly schedule with the football season back in full swing. This first podcast, though, was recorded through some travel obstacles as I was on the road back from Texas for my recruiting road trip. And we were not in our typical studio-like quality recording session. So you'll hear some ambient noise. You'll hear a few more rough edges than normal. But the important thing is that we're back talking USC football. Without further ado, let's do it. Welcome back to Trojan Talk, regular season edition. That's right. The spring fall start, the August cancellation, the delayed restart, the delayed fall camp. It's all behind us now, and we are talking about an actual football game. USC opens Saturday morning against Arizona State, and we're going to give you a whole lot to think about leading to that game. I'm Ryan Young, as always, and I am joined again this season by my co-host, Max Brown, the former USC quarterback and our Trojansports.com analyst. Max, how are you? I am doing great. Fired up to finally be uh, finally be game week. It was the, the longest offseason uh, in program history, but we're, we're finally here. More than 10 months between games, and we didn't give you any podcast during the preseason because no one was actually getting to see anything. So really, we've just been taking the perspective and insight from the coaching staff and the players that we talked to on Zoom, but there's been no media at camp, and there's only so much to rehash each day, each week beyond what we're writing when we're not seeing anything different. But we are going to summarize all the main storylines from camp. We are going to talk about Arizona State. In addition to having Max on, I also have an interview with Hode Rubino, the publisher of Devil's Digest. We went for a half hour into the nitty-gritty on the Sun Devils and what to expect from them. So we'll let Hode take the lead on breaking down Arizona State's team entering the season, get some more general and topical thoughts from Max and myself, and just have a fun discussion. But first of all, I want to let you know what our plan is for this fall. As you know, Max was with us all last year. We're doing something a little different this season. I think you're going to really like it. We're going to have a once-a-week podcast that we'll tape on Sundays, post on Mondays, where we spend half of it breaking down the game that just happened and half uh, getting Max's analyst thoughts on the upcoming matchup. Then, midweek, Wednesdays, Wednesday afternoons, evenings-ish, Max is going to give us a film review breakdown. He's going to pick out an aspect of the game, something scheme-related. Maybe it was the most important play. Maybe it was... Uh, a player taking a massive step and put his analyst cap on and go into the film room, which is kind of how he got started in this transition from player to, to media analyst guy and deliver that for our TrojanSports.com family. Max, very excited for, for that plan we put together this season. That'll be awesome, and I like how you, uh, you worded that. In terms of one specific aspect uh, and leaving that open-ended, uh, intentionally, because we'll see what pops every week. It might be an important two-minute drive and breaking that down. It might be a big-time throw from Keaton, Keaton Slovis. It might be a performance from Tyler Vons or something like that. So it's going to be X's and O's related. Um, hopefully going to pull uh, the, the TV copy, maybe use some whiteboard stuff. But uh, I'll mix it up. And, and like Ryan said, that's kind of how I got my go in this and this new career path, I guess you could say, after my playing days. So excited to dive back into it and uh, 
it should it should be good stuff. Thinking like a five to ten minute deliverable and hoping it's something that you guys check out every week in this uh, this condensed season. Well, speaking of your career, it seems to be going very well and taking off to new levels, as we all expected once you dove into this fully and uh, our audience got to hear you all last season. Max, you were on a game broadcast this weekend for Stadium UAB at Louisiana Tech in beautiful Ruston, Louisiana. Tell us about that experience and that, what kind of opportunity that was for you. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was good, uh, good fall day in Louisiana. Kind of, I mean, I live out here in LA, like a lot of you uh, listeners probably do, and it's crazy just how a different different world is out there. But no, it's a great opportunity. I started the the broadcasting pursuit a couple of years ago, like we just alluded to, making a YouTube channel. And my my end goal was always to call big time college football games in the booth. And Louisiana Tech UAB might not be Penn State Ohio State like last weekend, but uh, it is still an awesome step. Yeah, it was great, like like you said, it was televised by stadium. Uh, I was the color commentator in that booth with Chris Hassel and a full crew, and just an awesome opportunity. It was fun, kind of having the mic and, and running the show and. It was awesome, and a cool little tidbit. I'm pretty sure I've probably said this story here on the, on this podcast before, but my first kind of – the first time that I knew that, hey, I want to pursue this whenever football ends, granted I thought it was going to be like 20 years from then, uh, but the first time I ever realized it was uh, as a backup at USC, as a backup on Fridays, you don't really get any reps. Uh, and when I was backing up Cody Kessler – you're just kind of sitting there on the sideline and, and kind of going through those reps, and I'll never forget. I was, I would fake color commentate uh, with Scott Thompson, who was the uh, recruiting coordinator at the time, uh, and we would just mess around. Like Kessler's pass is complete to Nelson Aguilar, like falls forward for five. Like Steve Sarkeesian's really got to like that performance, like those type of things. And we would just kind of mess around on the sidelines, and people would get a good kick out of it, like listen to it. So like. From there, from starting from there, just kind of messing around on Fridays to being in a suit and tie last Saturday in the booth in Ruston, Louisiana. It was uh, a cool little climb and hopefully the first of many broadcasts. And no, it was an awesome experience. And uh, that was great and excited to, to get back to, to USC ball uh, this weekend. That's awesome. So just take us, though, into your first experience in that setting. It's, you know, you're live, everything's real time. How much does that just sit in your mind the whole time that there's really no safety net here? I'm, I'm, I'm out there for everyone. Yeah, there's no going back and uh, cutting things out like we, uh, we have the luxury <laughs> yeah, of. Right? We, ne- we, never, we never really use it that much, but I don't know. It, you're, you're, it's a good point. Everything's live. And no, the first thing I said to my family kind of when I came off or uh, family and friends is it's crazy just how the lessons you learn as a player really carry over in life. And it was a similar feeling kind of before my first start in Alabama. Don't get me wrong, like playing Alabama is a lot more a lot more nerves and a lot more just kind of eyeballs on you and whatnot. But the, what I mean by that is just kind of I prepped as much as I, as I could. I was as prepped as I, as I was going to be. And you kind of take a deep breath and say, all right, we'll see what happens. Like let, let the chips fall where they may. And uh, luckily in this broadcast, the, the chips fell in a more favorable uh, position than the, than the Alabama, Alabama game. But, <laughs> No, it was a good experience and grateful for the opportunities the past couple of years of, of podcasts like this and little segments I was able to go on. And the, I do the USC pre- and post-game show, which I'm going to do that again this year. So if you listen to that, be sure to tune in again. Just got off a call this morning about the production the production deal there. But grateful for those opportunities for that. It was good prep for getting in, the, in a real-life stage uh, on camera. But uh, it was awesome. Felt like I did well, felt comfortable. And, yeah, hopefully the first of many. 
No, that's great. A huge step. Really cool for you. We're definitely happy for you. Uh, since we're kind of catching up on what's going on, I might as well let people know, which they've probably been seeing on Twitter, that I've been on the road for the last month, which is just uh, kind of a crazy undertaking and, and more than I initially anticipated when I set out. But I, I want since there was no access at USC for practice, uh, we couldn't be on campus, we couldn't watch camp, everything's via Zoom. I wanted to use that time to the, the best maximum potential and get out on the road for recruiting coverage. So I drove to Arizona to see USC's 2022 quarterback commit, Devin Brown, on October 2nd. And it's now November 2nd, and I'm still making my way back home. I'm sitting in El Paso, Texas, as we record this podcast. In between, I drove to Dallas. I then immediately flew to Tampa because the Trojans were getting a commit from Michael Trigg, the four-star tight end. I then uh, got to Philip Riley, another uh, commit. For the Trojans, I bounced around to Jacksonville. I drove to Atlanta to see Josh Moore, the wide receiver commit, who jumped on board last month. I flew back to Dallas. I spent a week in Dallas went to see Quay Davis, the four-star wide receiver commit. Drove down to Houston, got around to Alton McCaskill, who's a top running back target, Lake McCree in Austin, the tight end commit, and uh, Donovan Green, 2022 tight end target. And just kept trying to find stories and, and getting around everything. So it was a lot of fun to be on the road. I'm exhausted. I'm ready to get home and dive right into the season. But it's been a good month for the site. My goodness. That is mad props. I'm sure I speak <laughs> for all listeners when I say that. That's a, that's a month grind. Whoever said that COVID, COVID met lockdown wasn't talking to Ryan, Ryan Young. <laughs> but uh, now respect. That's awesome. And I'm sure you're, you're, you're fired up to have it finally be season. Not only just for real-life football purposes, but... Uh, for for your uh, exhaustion levels as well. Yeah, and and you make a good point. We were very 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 COVID safe, uh, masks at all times during all the interviews. If you go back and listen to the video interviews, you'll hear my muffled questions as I was uh, being respectful of the current situation. It was a challenge, you know, challenge finding places to eat that were uh, socially distant and safe because some states are taking a little more uh, a little more open approach than others uh, and. It was kind of eye-opening to go across the country and see how the response is different everywhere, but I definitely do not want to talk about COVID on this podcast any more than we have to. So let's get into the game. Max, I think that it could be said that this game between USC and Arizona State could set the course for the Pac-12 South race. I don't want to slight Utah because obviously they deserve a lot of respect for the consistency of that program under Kyle Whittingham. But until I see their offense without Tyler Huntley, without Zach Moss, their defense without uh, Anai and some of those big guys, I don't know how to project them. And USC and Arizona State both have a lot of guys back. They were picked 1-2 in the preseason poll by us media folk. So it's a really interesting first game. I don't know if it's ideal to have this game first, especially for USC uh, when it wants to get this new defense ironed out. But what are your let's just start there, your thoughts on the stakes for this opener. Yeah, stakes are extremely high. And I love the the qualifier you made about Utah. But even then, I mean I talked to a lot of people in Salt Lake and I think even they would acknowledge that this game, USC ASU, that's gonna set the standard for, for this South because You'd have to think that Utah's not going to run the table. And if, if you start getting into one loss talk, then that's where this game, like the, the winner obviously sets their foot down a, a great direction. The loser 
obviously the other way around. The, the point I want to drive home is just in this condensed season, we always live in the world of college football where every week is so important, but in this condensed season, I mean, only six games of regular season, you lose. Like, that's detrimental. And then vice versa, if you catch fire and you string a couple wins together, even if you are a, quote, like, random team like Arizona, who no one's really talking about this year, like, you can string some wins together and find yourself in the conference championship. So definitely a championship fight week one, good old 9 a.m. I just got the... uh, I just got the word of the the, the pregame show started at seven a.m. So that's like new chartered uh, chartered chartered waters as well. But uh, no, I think you hit the nail on the head. Super important game. Um, I looked at a few factors. I think one, what's the impact of ASU's ability to have practiced more this off season, just being where they are? Um, how does that impact things in terms of um, health, experience? Um, just uh, camaraderie guys getting used to the system and whatnot that's very fascinating to me the second part is the different coordinators at play asu's got two new ones usc has a new coordinator at play in terms of getting used to a new system i think there's something you said about hey we're not playing unlv week one we're not playing um whoever it is sack state week one like no this is right away conference play like you're if it takes a team a quarter to get used to a new scheme or there's one bust in coverage that may not have happened if you were playing asu in week four like you were in years past like that's a big deal that's not necessarily talent that's not necessarily Herm edwards versus coach helton per se it could just be a young player getting some action and then like how, how does that uh, how does that net out and i think the other aspect as well is just the long-term circumstance of this game. I think all offseason you talk about ASU kind of chipping away at the West Coast a little bit, and USC's definitely slowed that narrative just by how well they have been recruiting. But, I mean, if ASU wins this game, let's say USC runs it, runs the, the rest of the, the games, it goes 5-1, five, five and one, like ASU's going to have that stronghold, and you better believe they're going to recruit and use that over USC. So there, it's, there's bigger implications than just this one season. The health uh, factors also come come to play in terms of USC still waiting to, to get some guys back. And ASU was a team that had a lot of injuries a year ago. Assuming those guys are back and they're healthy, how do they adjust? But by large, heavyweight fight right away. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the quarterbacks, two young quarterbacks, the two best quarterbacks in the conference. Uh, but to me, I still look at USC as the favorite in this game. I've said this in the offseason in that you can make the argument, and uh, I will make it right here, that I do not think there was a team in the Pac-12 that was helped. And it's very weird to say that when you're talking about a pandemic and a disease, but a team that was helped more by COVID than USC. And what I mean by that is just the in the Pac-12. And when I say that, I'm just talking about uh, the experience that USC has going coming back. Yes, they have a new coordinator, but in my football eye, it's a lot easier to adapt a new defensive system than it is a new head coach or offensive system like USC had to do a year ago. But with the amount of guys SC has returning and the experience that they have relative to the other 11 schools in the Pac-12 that had to find new quarterbacks, that had new head coaches, that had young players at key positions they had to had to replace. I think in the grand scheme of things, USC is sitting very pretty in that regard, and I would expect that experience and situation to hopefully favor the Trojans and them get it done week one. Yeah, and you really can't use 
the new defensive staff as an excuse in this game because Arizona State, like you mentioned, has new co-coordinators on the defensive side. Marvin Lewis comes in and is paired with Antonio Pierce. They have a new offensive coordinator, Zach Hill from Boise State. So you can't, you can't point to that and say, well, you know, USC was put in a new system. Well, Arizona State's kind of put in two new systems. So um, that doesn't fly. I I think USC's the favorite here, but I'll be honest, I'm worried in this sense. I'm worried that this fan base is so ready to for any sign to jump off Clay Helton and get right back to where we were late last season and the year before that. And he has no margin for error here. And his teams have not exactly come out of the gates firing in the last couple of years. And there's no margin for error. There's six regular season games before the Pac-12 championship. And like you said, if you lose one, you're, you're pretty much done because ASU would have the tiebreaker. So you'd have to be counting on ASU to lose two, two more games for you to rally and come back. And neither USC nor ASU plays Oregon. The cross-division games are Washington State for USC, obviously, and Cal for Arizona State. So banking on two more losses the rest of the way is probably not a good game plan. So I I think that the Pac-12 hopes really do hinge on this first game. And if things go awry for whatever reason, the defense isn't ready, just something happens, it's going to be a long season of of clay hate. And after after 10 months of – anticipation to get back on the field that's really not what I want this fall to be defined by but that's the reality now if they win obviously you feel really good you go okay we probably have our hardest test out of the way this is in our hands now we gotta focus on style points we gotta get the national uh, attention we gotta somehow turn a seven game season including the championship game into enough for a playoff pitch so it's, it's just two drastic storylines that will emerge out of Saturday one way or the other. No doubt. And you said margin of error, and I agree with you on one side, and I disagree on the other. I think margin of error, you're right, in terms of USC going and getting a championship, without a doubt. I think they got to run the table. I think there's maybe a world where they're a one-loss one loss South champ and get in that way. But I think there's the other side of it is margin of error for Clay. Like me and you talked about that last year. Of hey, there's no more, there's no margin of error. Clay Helton might get fired. Like, I don't think that's the case this year. And I hope that USC fans realize that in terms of hey, if things go south, and it, let's say USC loses this game versus ASU, I know there's going to be SC fans like fire Clay, fire Clay. But I'm here to tell you that's not going to happen. We're living in a in a pandemic. The idea of Mike Bone firing Clay, like things really have to go off the rails this year, in my opinion. If USC has one loss, even if USC has two losses, which I don't see them losing more than two games. To me, that's absolutely ludicrous. But if, if they lose two games, Clay Helton's still coming back. You're not finding a new head coach in January mid-pandemic, in my opinion. Last year, we thought Clay Helton was going to be out of here, and here he still is. But I think the narrative that, like, hey, he's on the chopping block right away, I think that's lessened. And that's lessened because of the pandemic and the situation we're in. So I hope USC fans, if things go south this Saturday, don't go down that path. And I say that kind of sarcastically because I know SC fans, and I'm sure that they, they will if, if USC wins. Yeah. But I just I think there is a I guess I'm saying there there is a larger margin of error in terms of Helton keeping his job because I just don't see him getting fired. But you're right in terms of the championship uh, the championship aspirations. But as and then as I said out loud, the Big Twelve on the other side of the other side of the country. 
they're not helping themselves out. If, a, if an undefeated Pac-12 champ happens, I think they're in. And I know BYU's out there. I know Cincinnati's in, out there. But even style points aside, I think an undefeated Pac-12 champ is in because you're talking strength of schedule over those other two teams, and the Big 12 just keeps beating each other up. So the Pac-12, that, that helps the Pac-12 a bunch. Well, I'm not ready to go there quite yet because you know the Big 12 is a step up, I guess, on the national perception scale than the Pac-12 has been of late. But it's also not in the same category as the other three. And so them falling out of the picture doesn't, to me, totally change the balance. You're still going to have Clemson, most likely, Ohio State, most likely, let's just say Alabama. And Alabama. And, and then if, if Georgia or Florida get there with one loss and somehow beat Alabama in, in the championship game, then I think you're getting two SEC teams. So I, I think a lot more has to fall in the Pac-12's favor for this to work, and there's going to have to be some style points. And you got to hope that the team on the other side of the conference is good so that Pac-12 championship game catches some real national attention. You don't want a, yeah. a 6-0 USC team playing a, a 4-2 Oregon team. That's not going to move the needle. Yeah. I agree with you in that one loss deal, that scenario you just, uh, you just outlined. But to me, that's the only, the only thing. If, if that Florida team does not beat Alabama or that Georgia team does not beat Alabama, which is likely not to happen, I think that fourth spot is uh, is prime for an undefeated uh, Pac-12 champ. But we can—that's a topic uh, I'm sure for sure. six weeks from now we can uh, we can discuss. Well, no, it's 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 fun to at least uh, have that hope in the back of the mind. But y- your point is right. The margin for error. There's two two very different points to be made there, and we made both of them. I'm with you. I don't think that Clay is on the hot seat right now. I can tell you that coming off of the off season before the pandemic. When everyone thought, oh man, they just invested in a whole new defensive staff. They've been all these uh, all these support staff boost around him. That means he's staying. I'm pretty certain that wasn't the case and that there was ample flexibility if things went south this year to make a move and still try and keep a Dante Williams and a Vic Soto and maybe even a Tyler Orlando if, if the defense did its part. I don't know how much the pandemic has changed that. I have to assume it has. Because every school's lost money, and obviously, you know, you have boosters step in and pay buyouts and everything. But I, I, I think that it probably has changed things and and softened the landing for Clay if things go a little awry this year, and we'll see. But you know what? Let's steer it back to the game. And I do have Hood Rubino coming on the show to really get into the the depth chart and break down the personnel. But, Max, just a big-picture overview. What do you think decides this game? What What is the pivotal matchup, storyline, angle that you think is going to swing this result one way or the other? Yeah, USC's offensive line, and that, that's going to be the point I drive home uh, probably the first few weeks of the season. I think early on, I think early on, if USC's offensive line can just hold up, and I mean hold up in, in every sense of the word. They don't have to be dominant. Uh, they don't have to be groundbreaking, but if they if they can just not be the glaring weakness, I think that favors USC a lot. If you're AIC on the other hand, you are scheming to attack these tackles and make it absolutely living hell for for these tackles off the edge. You're doing blitz packages, you're confusing them. That would be my game plan if I'm if I'm ASU because you look at USC's roster, they're strong at 
just about every single position group except the tackle position. So that's where my head's at. I think if they can, if USC can just be solid there and not have it be a detrimental weakness, then I like the Trojans in this game. And moving forward, the, the offensive line's not going to be perfect week one, but if they can continue to progress and, and get to a level where SC has to be able to run the ball at will when teams drop eight. It was the it was the uh, the Achilles heel a year ago, and uh, that's what they have to improve this year. And so those tackles uh, on the offensive side of the ball, very interested to see how they how they net out there. If they can be solid, I like SC's chances. We will get to predictions at the very end. Um, one more angle of this game specifically, and then I want to give you some buy or sell opportunities based on what we learned in the preseason. But uh, sticking with the matchup, I think one of the most intriguing subplots is uh, the first time we get to see Keaton Slovis and Jaden Daniels share the field. Jaden Daniels obviously missed the game last year with injury. Joey Yellen played in his place. Joey Yellen is now at Pitt, which is uh, close to your heart, Max. <laughs> um, He's uh, struggling a little bit, but yeah, no, it'll be a good matchup. Yeah, but so we, we didn't see Keaton and Jaden last year. I think almost everybody would agree that they are the two best quarterbacks in this conference now. They are the present and near future of this conference. And you'll hear me ask Hode Rubino of Devil's Digest later to make the case for Jaden Daniels as the better of the two, which I, I knew he would take that stance, so I just let him go with it. But, Max, I'll just ask you open-ended. You can have one quarterback right now for the next two years is it Keaton Slovis or Jaden Daniels? And we want your unbiased opinion here. Yeah, and my unbiased opinion would be a follow-up question. Who's my offensive coordinator? What offensive coordinator I get? Uh, I'll go Keaton Slovis, uh, but it's in large part because of who his play caller is. And I think the reality is if you swap places and you put Keaton Slovis and Jaden Daniels offense and vice versa, I think Jaden Daniels would have more success than Keaton. I, I just I think that highly of Graham. I think highly of the answers he's given him at the quarterback position. But uh, right now, I love Keaton Slovis. I think. I mean, I was just looking at his betting line for uh, for Heisman and whatnot, and I think that's a that's a value bet if you're trying to trying to send someone there. Um, but I'm taking Slovis. I love what this air raid, if you can call it that, has has given him. I think it's a very clear picture and any former USC quarterback saying, dang, why can't I have uh, gotten that offense? But he's balling out, and I'm very excited to see the improvement he makes from year one to year two. I mean, it's crazy. Like last year, he was not even supposed to play. I know all our listeners know this, but we, we got to remind ourselves, not even supposed to play, not even on anyone's radar. We were given Graham Harrell crap that he was saying uh, Keaton Slovis was like the best since Aaron Rodgers and all that stuff. But here we are where... He is SD's best offensive player, and I think a lot falls on his shoulders this year, but a lot falls on just the entire QB offensive coordinator relationship, and uh, I think that's as strong as, as really any any relationship out there, and uh, I'd expect, expect big things, so I'm going with Slovis. We weren't all giving Graham Harrell crap. Some of us, some very few of us... Planted our flag on Slovis Island early on when there were a few other inhabitants and little else happening, and we set up a tent and we waited and we watched. And uh, I will I will keep reminding people of uh, of that claim that I had. Anyways, um, let's get into the. Bi- you and Graham were hanging out on the island. I was in the boat. 
on the outside of the island being like, Ooh, what are those guys doing over there? I think they might be up to something, but I had not fully committed to uh, planting the tent on the island, so mad props to you guys. And, and the, the Jack Sears pirate ship was well off the coast. Jack and I was I guess that, that's the ship I was on I love Jack as a, as, as a dude I'm glad he had a successful week last week oh but man that, that that's something I'll say I was uh, I was on the, the ferry to the uh, the other side saying give me JT Daniels at the time and uh, oh how the things change I guess you could say yeah well I was definitely a JT fan too so I, I was I was there and I don't really know what's happening at Georgia that's a topic for another day was great to see Jack Sears light it up for Boise State in his first start this past week, and I watched that whole game. Uh, couldn't have asked for much more for him. Happy to see him do that. Uh, it's working out for everybody right now, except for JT at the, at the present. But uh, anyways, let's get into buy or sell, and I'm going to give you five opportunities on each side of the ball. Five offense, five defense. There's no limit to how many you can buy or sell. Uh, I won't be offended. And these aren't all my opinions. These are more just takeaways from camp or narratives that have been pounded into us by the coaches this camp uh, the first one though is my own creation and it's something you already hinted at do you buy or sell that Keaton Slovis could do enough in seven games to be a viable Heisman Trophy candidate interesting so I think the way you I'm going to piggyback on the way you worded that but I'm not saying win the Heisman and saying viable Heisman Trophy candidate I am saying I buy that the, the way I take that is can he get an invite to New York and to me the answer is is yes I think you go down the list of players and there's Fields there's Lawrence and we'll see what happens with Lawrence but outside of that like it drops off quickly, and so if if Slovis goes out there, and even if it is a one-loss USC team, and Slovis is putting up crazy stats and his yards per game, even if he doesn't have the shooter-like quantity of numbers, if his game averages are up there with the best of the best, then I think he finds himself. I think he finds himself there, especially he has the brand name. When you talk about schools like a. I mean, like a, like a Washington or a Cal, like nationally, they might not be there in terms of brand name. USC those voters are going to be looking to get a Trojan quarterback back there because I don't care who you are. Nationally, college football is better when USC is involved. So I buy that, and I think he has, once again, the coordinator and the ability to put up stats to match that. But I'm very wary, as I, as I say that, and I've only been an analyst for a couple of years now, is it feels like, as I said, I know there's MC fans out there like rolling their eyes saying, here we go again, we're talking about Heisman Trophy and national and playoffs and all that before we've even had like a substantial season and I level with that and uh, don't get me wrong I, I hear you there but when you have the talent and like we've all seen in stints it's just a matter of being consistent doing it week in and week out I think there's definitely a viable scenario where uh, Slovis has himself a seat in New York or a virtual seat in New York when it's all said and done uh, I'm kind of with you I again I'm not trying to push the hype train too much i think he has an uphill climb with the seven game season but if he has the kind of touchdown to interception ratio he had over the second half of last year and he is maybe even more efficient as you might expect going from year one to year two and if a lot of ifs here if usc goes seven and zero, then i think it's going to be very hard to not have him as a candidate or at least in the final conversation of candidates very good, very good. 
Max, your second buy or sell opportunity. This is a narrative coming from the coaching staff. The coaching staff is really, really driving home the point that Stephen Carr has never looked better. He's had his best camp yet. He's focusing on being more of a north-south runner than rather than dancing around too much in the backfield. He's healthy. He's he's just looking like the Stephen Carr of old. Do you buy or sell Stephen Carr having a massive senior season and I guess finally cashing in on all the hopes and optimism that arose from his first half of his freshman year? Ooh, interesting. I will I will sell this. And it's funny, probably coming from me, those of you guys that are loyal listeners, I was I'm all about Stephen Carr. I think he's phenomenal. I was I was not on the step bandwagon as quickly as other people because of Stephen Carr. I think he's special, special, special. And so I'm selling not even because of Stephen Carr, but because of the outside factors. I think USC's offensive I don't think USC's offensive line is going to be dominant this year. I'm very wary of that, and that is not conducive to a very good running game per se. Um, and then the other side is, I think we I mean we talked about it all off season the stable of backs that USC has, and I know they're hoping that Marquis Step can get back healthy and whatnot. But there are still a lot of guys to feed in that backfield that I do not think it's conducive to one guy breaking out. So it's not even a Stephen Carr situation. It's the offensive line that I'm worried about. It's the stable of backs. And I think at Graham Harrell's heart, he wants to throw the ball 40-plus times a game. And if they get rolling, like they have, and they have Slovis, and if Slovis gets to a point where he's, I mean, absolutely operating at an elite level, which we expect with these receivers – there could be scenarios where we're just passing the ball all around the park, and a lot of the quick passing game is virtually the run game. So those three right reasons that aren't even Stephen Carr reasons are why I'm selling Stephen Carr having a monstrous, monstrous 2020. Very logical points all around. Just to update the running back situation, it's really been Stephen Carr and Keenan Christian this preseason. Uh, Marquis Stepp. Came into camp still not 100% with the ankle, but very close by all accounts. He then had a mid-foot sprain, as it was termed, and missed some time. And then Monday, Clay Helton said it's actually a turf toe injury that's that's uh, the most worrisome. But he should be good to go for week one. If you're a marquee step stockholder, like someone on this podcast, that's, that's not exactly the report you want to hear entering this season. You want him to be fully healthy and to show what he can do, that tells me that he's probably not going to get a ton of carries early on this year. Um, I'm not saying he won't be involved. I just don't think he's going to be a bell cow of any sort, and that at least opens the door for Stephen Carr. Also, we haven't heard anything about Vivai Malapai in a while. He had a hamstring strain early in camp. I think Carr could have a, a nice season, but I think I agree with all your points, and we're going to dovetail right into the next buy and sell opportunity with, we talked to Graham Harrell on Monday, and he really, really, really drove home the point that he wants a balanced offensive attack. That, yeah, this is air raid. Everyone thinks air raid is all pass. Last year, USC was top 10 passing offense and a bottom 20 rushing offense, but that was because of the injuries. That was because Keenan Christian was young and wasn't ready for a full workload. 
Graham said on Monday, anyone who's run this kind of offense knows that when the running game is working, that's when it's at its best. Do you buy or sell that USC will be a significantly more balanced offense this year? Um, I am selling that once again. Um, significantly more. They might be a little bit more, but what was the narrative last year? The narrative last year on SC was, wait a sec, this isn't the air raid. They're running the ball all the time. The running game was a steady dose of last year's offense, and I think it will be again this year. I think they will um, use the running back uh, in that way. But at the end of the day, like, what is the strength of this USC team? In in a lot a lot of ways, it's Keaton Slovis and this and these receiving cores. Yeah, you have Tyler Vaughn's coming back, and I think I mean obviously Amon Ross St. Brown. Excited to see what Brew McCoy is going to do. Like that is where the money's made, in my opinion. Yes, you have to. Utilize the running game. Yes, you have to make it part of uh, part of your weekly scheme. But the idea of being a 50-50 split, I just don't see it, um, especially because I know how these air raid play callers work. The second you get a drive where Keaton Slovis completes six easy passes in a row, three of which are hitches and two out routes and just one swing pass, it's like, wait a sec, that's our run game right there. Let's just call those plays. And so um, – I think it'll be part of the offense, but the idea that it's going to be some new look, I don't think so. That new look was last year. That caught us a lot of, a lot of us um, at surprise, and the fact that this is not the array, this is just kind of a very good offensive scheme, <laughs> I think it's going to continue this year uh, once again. Uh, another exceptional uh, set of points there. I think some people get skewed by the stretch where uh, Keenan Christian was the only healthy back and Slovis concurrently had his stretch of four 400-yard passing games in the span of five weeks, and they see that nugget and think, oh, well, that was the evolution of the offense. And it was really, I think, dictated by the by the injuries. And I I do agree, early in the season, we were going, wait, this, this is the air raid? Uh, we, we definitely had those questions. So I think we see a little bit more running. I think it's still a pass-heavy offense. And I gotta come up with a name for this offense that's not air raid. Like, right, called like ra- raid or something. I don't, I don't even know. I got I'll go a mission before uh, before Saturday's kickoff. <laughs> I like it. I mean, if you recall last year at the Pac-12 media days, Clay Helton even tried to, to distance from the air raid. In fact, I think his verbatim quote was, "I w- this isn't really the air raid," and he was driving the balance point home then. But everyone's just kind of going back to calling it the air raid again because we don't really know what else to call it. But it's uh, whatever it is, it worked, and we'll see how it works this year. Okay, you got two more chances on offense here. Uh, yes, two more chances. You already kind of hinted at your doubts about the offensive line. The coaching staff is doing yeoman's work here to convince us all that everything is not just good, it's great up front. That that there are no worries about replacing both starting tackles and not having a lot of depth that position, et cetera, et cetera, and that this unit is ready to rock. Max, do you buy or sell, and I already know where you're going to go, that the offensive line is not a concern? I am selling that 100%. I was trying to think of an analogy right there to emphasize it even more, but we are like some stock exchange guy saying sell, sell, sell. I'm selling that. And, let, and I won't even be as harsh. Let's say – that Drevno and Helton, they love their starting five, which I I, I could I could buy that. I I, I, I do buy that. I, I think right now they are saying, you know, we got 
we got a good five. I, I, I feel like one guy, a couple guys emerge, and they feel good. We all know that they feel good interior-wise. It's all about the tackles. But even if that was the case, you still have to be nervous about depth. A year ago in 2019, and knock on wood, I'm doing it right now, USC had very good fortune with offensive line health. You cannot bank on that year in and year out, even if you only have a six, seven-game schedule. And so you need depth walking into a season at the offensive line position, and that's where I'm selling. Because I think even if you like your starting five, I'm still nervous about the rest of the bunch and the unit and the room as a whole. And so, I mean... I I have a, I'd be willing to bet that those staff meetings are. Yep, we know we're getting at receiver. Yep, we know we're getting at quarterback. Yep, we know we're getting at running back. All right, what's the offensive line deal? How'd they do today? Every coach in the room's listening. Everyone's wary of it. So I'm selling that narrative, but I can't blame them. I would do the exact same thing if I was Helton and, and Drefto. Build up those guys' confidence. Let them know that they're not the not the room that everyone's thinking about. I respect the move, love the coaching tactic, but I am selling that one. <laughs> well, just you know, for those that haven't been following the daily coverage and maybe you don't know where things stand, uh, O-line was obviously the big question and the only question on the offense aside from just the running back usage. And it was really kind of answered pretty quickly in terms of the starting five. There wasn't really much doubt. It was pretty clear after the first week. It's going to be Elijah Vera Tucker at left tackle, as we knew. It's going to be Andrew Voorhees at left guard. Obviously, you've seen him as a starter before, mostly at right guard. Brett Nealon's back at center. Liam Jimmins, who I really like a lot, at right guard. And Jalen McKenzie at right tackle, sliding out from right guard. Um, I, I, can, I can see an optimistic slant with that group. I still want to see McKenzie do it on the outside full-time. I actually thought that he was a little inconsistent at guard last year, so that's a question for me. And while we all love Vera Tucker and his next-level prospects, it's going to be as a guard, not a tackle. And I just want to see him make that transition. But you mentioned that the depth is the thing. I think, personally, if the, the worst-case scenario, obviously, is Vera Tucker getting hurt. Because in that case, I think you're probably sliding McKenzie now from right guard to right tackle to left tackle. And you're bringing in probably... Jonah Monheim, the freshman, as the as the next tackle up on the right side. If a guard goes down, you got Liam Douglas, you got Justin Dietich, um, Cortland Ford's been impressive this preseason by all accounts, the freshman. So there's some options there, but you've really got to keep those tackles healthy and hope that they have made that transition as well as the coaches have said. Max, your last last offensive opportunity to buy or sell. A guy that Fans are fixated on, are very excited about former five-star prospect Brew McCoy has just gotten rave reviews. Teammates can't say enough about him. Coaches have have touted him up. But whenever I ask, and I have asked several times, including Monday, I asked Graham Harrell specifically. I said, now with the end of camp, do you have a more defined sense for Brew McCoy's opportunities and role in this offense? And I did not get a very defined answer. I got a very general, he's done some great things, and it's all about him keeping, uh, staying consistent and keep growing and, and showing what he can do. Do you think that Brew McCoy will get a real chance to make an impact in a receiving core in a passing game that still has Tyler Vaughn's, Amon Ross St. Brown, Drake London, 
at all. So I guess the the, the buyer sell is that that is that Brew McCoy will have a substantial impact this season. I am buying that 100% buying that. I think he's going to be that fourth guy uh, for a couple reasons. One, uh, if you are not a social media guy, it's worth getting an Instagram account and following Gavin Morris, their recruiting guy up there. Yes. Love Gavin. He came in when I was there. Tons of his practice story clips are Brew McCoy going up, getting the ball, routing defenders, and making plays. And there's a lot of undertones in that, right? It's, he, he, he's filming that because he's obviously doing good things, but he's obviously probably excited about that. And the, just reading between the lines there, I think they're excited about that. Also, he has a, uh, a place in my heart. It looks like he switched to number four this year, which uh, anyone who rocks four at SC, that's a good, uh, that's a good, good pipeline to be in. Um, but not only because of that, but I also just know what single digits mean at USC. Like, you're not getting a single digit handed to you unless – not that you get handed to you. That's, that's exactly my point. He went out and earned it. And I know Clay Helton knows the significance of that, so they're not just tossing those out. And so those two reasons make you think he's had a great offseason, and I would expect him to do that. And I'm just very intrigued to see how they use him because we've talked about Amon Ra going outside more, Bruce a bigger body. Do they have a nice combination of kind of two big body slots, which is unique. You don't usually see that in football. But I'm totally buying Brew McCoy making an impact this year. I think he's going to be that fourth guy. And especially the case with some of these youngsters not playing in camp with a, a Jackson and, and McLean a little bit, obviously that, that, that deal a little bit. Um, I think it's given him an opportunity to shine a little bit. And I would expect, uh, I was going to say expect big things, but there's only one ball to go around. I don't know if it's going to be big, big things, but it's certainly going to be a roll week in and week out. And I'm excited for him. That's my hope. I mean, I, I certainly think that he is, I, I believe all the hype. I believe he's shown enough to have a role. I just want to see how they make it happen because I don't think that Vaughn's or St. Brown are coming out the field. And Brew McCoy is really an outside receiver. And so maybe they get creative. And we didn't, you know, going into last year, we didn't know that Drake London was going to be flexed out tight end, as they like to uh, say now in the, the blurred out lines. But anyways, um, I like it. I like it. We, we got you on the hook for one there. Let's go to the defensive side. And obviously the storyline since Orlando was hired is that there's going to be more physicality. We're going to be defined by toughness. you got to practice hard to, to, to play hard on Saturdays. We're going to tackle – do you think that all of this, ah, what's the word? All this salesmanship of this new identity is going to manifest on Saturdays and that USC will be a much better tackling team with a very clear identity of physicality and toughness. Do you buy or sell? I buy that. I buy that. And as us sports fans know, I think – at any sport, anytime you have a different voice that's telling you something, like it just makes an impact. I mean, we see it all the time. It's Robster virtually says the same. You change a coach, and just because it's a different perspective in there, a different guy kind of telling you it, guys kind of wake up to it. And I'm optimistic that that's going to happen this year. I really am. I think if I'm an SC player, I'm sick and tired of this narrative on defense that we can't tackle, we're not physical, and I get this guy coming in that's just, hey, that's what he's about. And the reality is, I love Clancy. I think he's a great defensive coordinator. I think things just didn't necessarily work out at USC. He's obviously had success in the NFL, and he's probably made more for that model. But Todd Orlando just sounds like everyone raves about he, how he just gets up and gets after it. Like, And 
that if you're saying that about your defensive coordinator, like that's going to wear off onto your defense. Uh, I'm I'm betting that the the, the, the narrative uh, is getting tired for a lot of those guys that are big time recruits and wanting to put that past them uh, defensively. So um, I am going to buy that with the one nervous aspect of does a limited off season with limited tackling and limited physicality and limited fundamental training does that catch up with them more so than anything culture related that's one concern i have but i'm optimistic and i'll buy that that point on the defense i'm with you i'm also buying i just think that i don't think that anything that he does is show i think he's total authenticity and uh, i'm sure it's rubbed off to whatever degree i think we're going to see some improvement on that point really the most intriguing individual to me with his arrival was Pala Ie Naotote, Ie, and what impact Orlando could make on just tapping into whatever more potential we haven't seen from Ie yet. Clay Helton has said it multiple times that T.O. has brought Ie to a whole nother level. This is the best he's looked. Do you think we finally see the version of EA that everyone has been waiting for and maybe expecting uh, when he came in as a five-star recruit? Buy or sell that we get peak EA this year? That's a tough one because I'm rooting for the guy and I don't want to be a negative Nancy, but I also want to level set the expectations in that when EA came to USC, the bar for him was Ray Maluga was... I mean, who else? I mean, yeah, it was like Ray, Ray Maluga. Like, that's what it was. And so, to that point, I'm saying I'm selling that because I don't think he will get there. I think there, and I think he's going to be, I think he I, he will take a step this year. I think he will be better. I think he will be a, a main stage at the middle linebacker position. But the reality is, I think of some of those errors that had happened in years past. Like, I don't think a single new coach changes all of that. I think some of that kind of stays with you a little bit. And so I say I'm selling, and that's going to have a negative connotation, but I'm only saying that because the bar for him was so, so, so high. And I don't know if we'll get there um, this year, but I still think he's going to be the main stage at middle linebacker. I think he's going to be a stud. But when we're talking about where those expectations were, where USC fans were saying he is the next all-American, I don't know if we're going to get that. I think that's fair the way you frame that. I do think we're going to see a better EA because, and and maybe this has just been the perception that's been reinforced so much it's become reality. I don't know to what degree it is the full reality, but the perception has been that he just never was comfortable in Clancy's system, that he was either asked to do too much or he was overthinking and was no longer that just free-flowing, instinctive player with exceptional athleticism, just focused on making plays. And because we did see it, like in his first games when he came in to fill in for Cam Smith two years ago when he was hurt, that's the player I saw that just like just was playing free, nose to the ball, uh, quick first step instincts, and then it really never sustained. And I think that's what Orlando's going to try and get out of him. And the role he's playing is actually it's the rover position is what it's called. It's one of the two inside linebacker spots. But it's a, it's a blitz-heavy position, or it has been historically in Todd's system. And if EA is given a simplified 
responsibility and is is used on a lot of blitzes and uh, a lot of just sheer athletic plays I think that we could really see another level to his game so I do buy it I'm also really intrigued to see Raylan go forth at middle linebacker uh, we haven't seen a depth chart but Clay kind of let something slip on Monday he was asked about Brandon Peely and he said oh you know he's gonna be one of those guys that ties up blockers and and frees up uh, EA and Raylan to make plays so I think that was a, li- a little a little hint uh, Kanai Malga has been, been hurt a lot of camp with a hamstring. I think all three of those guys play a lot, but I, I'm excited for that position as a whole, and I do think that uh, T.O. makes an impact on EA. Okay, we got a few more. We'll get through real fast here. Kind of building off that, I guess. Do you think that there is going to be enough of a pass rush for Tyler Orlando to truly do what he wants to do with this team? Obviously, USC lost Jake Tufeli. They have Drake Jackson, who will play the B-backer role, which is a stand-up, pass-rushing outside linebacker who's basically on the line of scrimmage but a few yards to the side. They have Hunter Eccles and Abdul Malik McLean behind him. But overall, across that D-line and outside linebacker and linebacker spots, do you see a significant pass rush wreaking havoc in the backfield this year? Buy or sell? I'm buying that. I really am. I think it's a lot of what you just said in terms of Orlando's scheme, wanting to blitz guys, maybe a less complex scheme in general and just have guys kind of pin their ears back a little bit. Um, So I'm buying that. And I think a large part, I mean, we talk about Slovis' development from year one to year two, but like for Drake Jackson, that's a whole offseason in the weight room. And as I said, I guess they were uh, stunted there a little bit with uh, all things COVID. But uh, even then. He was working out. Trust me. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just a year to get bigger and whatnot. Um, so I, I buy Drake Jackson. I buy this scheme uh, in terms of their pass rush mentality. And uh, I some of those edge rusher athletic guys you mentioned in terms of Hunter Eccles getting uh, a year older, uh, Malik McLean getting a year older, a year bigger. Like that matters, especially at depth. Um, and then the last factor is I think we will see, especially in Pac-12 play with a very limited offseason, offensive lines struggling at times and it favoring defensive lines and we've kind of always talked about that in terms of the Pac-12 of the lack of team to team elite front five players yes you see it in pockets here and there but by and large over the course of an entire team it sometimes struggles and I think with COVID and everything going on that helps defensive lines very much hurts offensive lines and I could see USC's defensive line cashing in on that. So I'm buying that narrative. Great take. Great take. Well, playing off that, if you look at Tyler Lando's history, it's been in his best years, very stout against the run, um, good on turnovers, good on on pressuring the quarterback, not so great in pass coverage as a trade-off of being an aggressive blitz team. A lot's been talked about this year about the onus being on the secondary and winning one-on-one matchups, and Dante Williams has put in a boundary and field system for the corners to better maximize their skill sets. Do you buy or sell that that this young secondary, a year older, all familiar names, is ready to rise to that challenge and take on the repercussions of the way the front seven is going to play? I do. I buy that. Um, for everything you just said, a year older, you're more experienced. Um, I think that matters. And even if 
at the end of the year, statistically, the secondary isn't much, much better. Even if it's a wash, if you're able to blitz the passer more aggressively and have the sack and the quarterback hurries and that that those metrics skyrocket, like that's worth maybe a wash or a slight decrease in the defensive back's performance because you're going to get more turnovers. You're going to get more sacks. You're going to get potentially face more backup quarterbacks and stuff like that. And so I, I do buy that. Um, that was one of the most exciting things of the team a year ago. Uh, preseason last year, we were worried about the secondary. We're not at all this year because of a lot of familiar faces. Um, and to me, it's also exciting that they're going boundary and field uh, schematically. And oftentimes for me, what that means is uh, like when I played, we would always have, not always, but oftentimes you'd have like a Josh Shaw to the boundary, a lot more physical corner, a bigger body guy. And schematically, it just made more sense. We're going to put our quicker, faster guy, a Kevon Seymour to the field and, 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 and those dynamics right there. And so I like the strategy there, especially if it makes sense uh, depth chart wise, but I buy that narrative. Put pressure on your secondary because they deserve it. They're old enough. They're good enough. And uh, allow... It's a trade-off. Everything in football is a trade-off. The more pressure you put on your secondary, the more freedom you give it, uh, you give EA or the more freedom you give Drake Jackson to just go get the quarterback. And so there's trade-offs to everything. Put the pressure on the secondary. Allow the, the, the front seven to pin their ears back. And I love that, uh, that strategy defensively. Good deal. And it's going to be OG as the field corner and – Chris Steele and Isaac Taylor Stewart on the boundary, and it sounds like Steele has the leg up there, but we'll see. Uh, I forgot to add one note when we were talking about Drake Jackson. He's actually lost 20 pounds, and he's slimmed down. And from my sources, it wasn't uh, a team directive or the coaches saying, we, we want you at this weight. He just started losing weight and was working out a ton this offseason and liked how he felt and felt faster. So we'll be interested to see how that uh, pans out. I talked to his dad, and his dad was joking to me. He goes, I told him if if you don't have the same season you had last year, that weight's coming right back on. So we'll see. Um, you, you got one more buy sell here, and it's it's been culminating. It's been building towards this the entire discussion. And I think you've already made your stance clear. I know my stance is clear. Do you buy or sell that Tyler Lando will have a significant impact overall on this defense? like Graham Harrell did on the offensive side last year. Um, maybe not the exact same percentage change, but do you think that we get what USC expected when they hired Tyler Orlando? I do. I do. I, I buy that. And um, so far I love everything that he's done, but I, I really want to drive home the point that I think just psych- psychologically by having a new voice in there, and having positive buzz around the defensive program and getting new coaches in there at every position group and meeting uh, position meetings are a little bit different. Just the psychological impact it has on players, I think that alone will level up these guys that have all the talent in the world. The talent's there. It's just a matter of executing. And I think with Clancy, it was that, that more so than anything is year after year when you've been there long enough and things haven't necessarily worked out perfectly – does the message fall on deaf ears? And right. I think there was certainly something to be said about that last year. And that's not going to be the case this year because it is fresh years. And so um, I certainly buy that. I certainly, uh, you, Todd Orlando deserves the credit there, but I think it's more of a psychological impact with a lot of these guys getting older, a lot of these guys getting fed up with the narrative, and a lot of these guys that are going to take advantage of offenses 
that didn't have an entirety of an off season to game plan together. And I was talking about it with, uh, with Skip Holtz, Louisiana Tech's head coach last week when I was covering that game. And he was talking about just the impact this offseason has had on younger offenses in terms of what they've been able to install. He told me that they only had 60% of their install in, like they were comfortable calling going into that game just because of the offseason. And you look around the Pac-12 South, you have an Arizona team that's still kind of finding their way. You have a Colorado team that is certainly finding their way. You have a Utah team who has an experienced quarterback, but a ton of new faces. Um, ASU is ASU, but they have a new coordinator. Uh, UCLA, kind of status quo there a little bit, but the point is is true, and just I think you're going to have teams and offenses finding their way a little bit that I hope that USC can take advantage of, and it's going to be taken advantage of on the on, on, on the USC defensive side, led by Todd Orlando, so I'm buying, buying what you said right there. All right, I'm buying too. I'm expecting big things. Great stuff. Let's end with predictions. Max, I'll start it off. I think we're going to see a lot of offense for all the talk about T.O. right there. I think we're going to see the best version of this defense as the season goes on. I am predicting a 34-28 to 28 USC win bright and early Saturday morning in the Coliseum. I'll go an absolute thriller. I'll go 38-35 USC. I think ASU will start fast. Um, don't really have a good reason why. I just <laughs> That's what my gut's, uh, gut's saying, and I think uh, it'll punch USC in the mouth. They'll fight back, and it'll be a great game. I'm going 38-35, and, uh, and the Pac-12, the Pac-12 is back, baby. I'm here for all of it. Awesome. Max, that was a lot of fun. It's going to be fun all season, especially getting to bring your your whiteboard film analysis skills yep. to trojansports.com this year. So good getting back in the flow of things, and we'll be talking soon. Great getting back, and uh, talk soon. Fight on. Again, great to have Max back on the podcast. We're doing it all fall for you guys, but we are not done today. No, sir. No, ma'am. Let's welcome in... Devil's Digest publisher, Hode Rubino, for the best insight you can possibly get on the Arizona State Sun Devils entering this season opener. Okay, very special guest on to Trojan Talk today. We have Hode Rubino from devilsdigest.com. He and I talked about the USC side of things for his site earlier this week, and now we're going to delve into the Arizona State side of this matchup. Hode, how are you? I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. So, you know, the, the focus for USC obviously has been a new defensive coordinator and, and everything that comes with installing a new defense. Arizona State has new coordinators on both sides. What's been just the overall uh, predominant storyline this preseason and, and what concern is there about uh, either side of the ball being ready for this first game with, you know, this kind of this weird year we've had? Sure. Well, when you look at the ASU offense, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of positive buzz about Zach Hill, who came from Boise State, installing a system that is very creative, very deceptive, a lot of pre-snap motions and shifts that ASU defensive players have been complaining uh, quite a bit that they have to face that type of scheme and practice each and every day. And while it's great to have a scheme that definitely compares to the last two years is going to really ignite the imagination 
of of the ASU fans once they actually see it on game day. I think that the ASU offensive staff uh, knows that they really have to walk that fine line between, on the one hand, trying to throw as many uh, deceptive plays, uh, not not only USC's ways, but every every team that's going to face ASU, but at the same time really not put too much on Jaden Daniels' plate. As talented as a quarterback Daniels is, we can't forget that he is that he is just a sophomore, and more importantly, um, virtually every skill player that is supposed to start uh, for the Sun Devils, obviously taking senior wide receiver Frank Darby out of the mix, if it is an, is going to be a newcomer. So, on the one hand, maybe those newcomers for Arizona State might have a level playing field with the veterans because everybody's getting to see the same new scheme at the same time. But uh, on the other hand, with having so many players that are expected to be key contributors for the ASU offense, but at the same time have yet to even suit up for one Pac-12 contest, uh, that remains, uh, as I mentioned, a very delicate balance that the ASU offensive staff is supposed to navigate. We also look at the offensive line. Uh, there's definitely a lot of ex- experience, especially when you look at center Kate Cote with, with a six-year senior, and you have Henry Haddis, a grad transfer, who's going to play right guard, Kellen Deesh, a, another grad transfer that's going to play left tackle. So I think that you're going to see an upgrade in terms of, of experience and just sheer talent. But on the other hand, it's not like this is an offensive line that played years and years together and playing in a system which, again, definitely has more complexities to what any of those players have experienced, whether it's ASU or elsewhere, uh, that definitely remains an interesting proposition now for the coaches uh, to navigate. On defense, uh, really moving from a 3-3-5 to a 4-3-4, uh, I think co-coordinators Marvin Lewis and Antonio Pierce have really downplayed uh, the big adjustment uh, that, that this group is going to go through and really they see a lot of positives, especially when it comes to the pass rush. Now, just going for, to a more traditional uh, format front, uh, the linebacker group and the and the secondary group for the Sun Devils is loaded with experience, loaded with uh, talent. A lot of players that that have been there, done that. So, really, on that side of the ball, it's not so much what scheme ASU is running versus the other. To me, is can this defensive line? show significant improvement uh, from uh, from last year because if they can this can go down as uh, one of the best def- um, defensive units we've seen in Tempe in a long long time so uh, those are basically uh, the uh, question marks that are associated with uh, implementing different schemes on both sides of the ball for ASU Great stuff, I want to get into a lot of that more in depth, let's start on the offensive side I think the consensus would be that Keaton Slovis and Jaden Daniels are the two best quarterbacks in this conference I know US, USC fans would strongly advocate uh, for Keaton Slovis. I'm sure ASU fans would make a strong case for Jaden Daniels. I, I want to hear your take. What, what, what is the case for Jaden Daniels as the top quarterback in the Pac-12 this year? Well, I think that uh, maybe as as opposed to, to Keaton Slovis, and granted he's playing in a scheme that doesn't doesn't really require him to be that creative with his feet, I think that's what really would maybe separate Jaden Daniels and, 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 and Keaton Slovis. Uh, not that Keaton Slovis threw a ton of interceptions in 2019, but Jaden Daniels only throwing two picks right. uh, the, the entire 2019 campaign. I think maybe that's a, 
another factor that uh, fans would would point to in that debate between uh, Keaton Sowers and Jaden Daniels. And look, uh, if you look at the 2019 contest, not that then backup Joe Yellen played horribly for ASU, quite quite the contrary, but I guess a lot of ASU fans feel that if it was Jaden Daniels there. Uh, taking the snaps and not not Joey Yellen, maybe ASU uh, come, come, you know comes away victorious. You know we can both agree that it was a really weird contest. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, they have USC scoring 20, uh, 28 points in the first quarter, only three the rest of the way, and the ASU offense sure maybe consistent in scoring in each and every quarter, but never scoring more than than seven points in uh, in, in any given quarter. And then again, ASU fans would argue that if it was Jaden Daniels and now Joe Yellen over there, that ASU could do just enough to come away with the W uh, in, in, in that game. But I would just say that, uh, that Jaden Daniels just being the uh, the more uh, creative signal caller um, out of the two and uh, being somebody who really doesn't put the ball in, in harm's way are some of the attributes, again, that if you're singing the praises of Daniels, those are two first things that do come to mind. I think the one thing is very important to mention is that Herm Edwards flat out said that as much as he appreciated the low risk attribute of Jaden Daniels, he wants him to take more risk in this Zach Hill offense. And really, I think it's a scheme that's going to ask Jaden Daniels to do much more uh, with the with the ball when it, when it comes to the passing game and maybe put the ball not intentionally but more in jeopardy that, than he had. In a very in a very safe scheme, and in, in, in the last year for ASU, so I'm really curious to see how Jaden Daniels is able to fully absorb uh, that scheme, but still be that very sure uh, hand, handed uh, passer, if you will, and not uh, really mushroom his his number of interceptions, uh, which you know on the one hand he set a pretty pretty high high bar or low bar, however you want to look at it, for not throwing more more than two interceptions in the year, but but can he still really uh, embrace the explosiveness um, of this more uh, so the explosiveness of the, of this ASU scheme? But on the other hand, just uh, still really be um, on the one hand creative, on the other hand, just also be really really careful with the ball. So that's really what I'm what I'm looking for when I look at Jaden Daniels and how he's going to operate within the Sun Devil offense. Well, like any well-versed expert, you managed to answer my next question before I even asked it, which was going to be what is the next step for Jaden Daniels, but you covered that. And as you also mentioned, we obviously got denied this matchup last year, this quarterback showdown, so that's certainly the headliner of, of this game is seeing those two guys go at it. Let's talk about his playmakers a little bit more. You mentioned Frank Darby earlier, obviously had great numbers, excellent yards per catch last year. Arizona State loses Brandon Ayuk, who's having a nice season in the NFL. They lose, you know, Benjamin at running back. Uh, who are going to kind of be the guys that rise up at those spots, especially running back, where I, I don't even have a guess as to as to what who the favorite is there or how it's looking. Let's start with that running back position, and I think that uh, ASU did did a great job just overall in in, 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 the, in the in the 2020 recruiting class of it being a top 25 group and really hitting all the right notes, if you will, on the offensive skill positions. And two of those four-star prospects, in my opinion, really really came as advertised. Uh, Demonte Trainum from, uh, from Akron, Ohio. Uh, when we were able to witness and cover spring practices, uh, that guy looked um, as, as great as he did uh, on film and and, uh, and, and definitely a prospect that Sun Devil fans were excited for and and when he got to see him in spring practice, we were definitely excited for, for a very, very good reason. 
uh, 5'11", 230, but really not only just a one-trick pony in, in terms of being that bruising uh, running back. He definitely has an, uh, enough athleticism to do some damage uh, in the open field to sometimes run um, off tackle and, and really be a decent also, I think, uh, receiver of, uh, from, uh, from the backfield. He's going to battle who I think is a steal of this uh, 2020 recruiting class just because he arrived, uh, I'm sorry, signed uh, signed in May and, uh, and arrived only late late in the summer as, as opposed to uh, DeMonte Training, for example. And that is that is Rashad White, uh, who maybe some USC, USC fans would know as a former commit to, uh, to UCLA, uh, ended up uh, decommitting and just fell in Arizona State's lap, as I mentioned, really, really late in this uh, bizarre recruiting cycle. And uh, right now, Rashad Wright and uh, DeMonte Trainem are really battling for that starting position. So if you don't know who's going to start, uh, you're, you're definitely in the same boat <laughs> as I am right now. But uh, it's definitely not going to be a lesser of two evil situation at all when it, when it comes to the offensive backfield for Arizona State. Uh, Rashad Wright is, is beginning a lot of a lot of rave reviews, and not that the enthusiasm concerning Trainem has diminished by any means. It's just one of those quote-unquote good headaches that the ASU offensive staff now has. Where they're going to start Rashad White? Where they're going to start Demonte Cranium? And and what's going to be the um, the, the the ball carrier distribution of it between between both Rashad White being a being a taller um, running back at six one, almost two hundred pounds, uh, really reminds me a lot of a former um, ASU running back. Also happened to be a junior college transfer, and then Marion Grice, maybe a name that's familiar to, to some USC fans from seven or so years ago and uh, and and monte train him i say be similar maybe more to demara richard but a, a, a little tall a little taller um a little um a little more athletic so uh that's gonna be really the two-headed monster for asu uh, in the running game but uh let's not forget uh daniel nada um who was, was another four-star prospect in, in arizona state's 2020 class He's uh, the more uh, shiftier running back, change of pace running back, probably the best receiver out of out of the three running backs that I mentioned. Was very limited in inj- with injury in the spring practice, but uh, in preseason, is uh, another player that really been generating a lot a lot of buzz. And I don't think it would be a huge drop off for Arizona State's running game if it was uh, not uh, lining up um, and not and not any of those two uh, running backs that I mentioned uh, at wide receiver. Again, it's really just a recurring theme. You have uh, very heralded four-star prospects. In this case, two top 150 uh, players that just come that definitely come as advertised for this Arizona State offense at slot receiver. LB Bunkley Shelton, I know a player that the USC recruited quite a bit, and I think the prevailing notion was that wherever LB Bunkley Shelton was going to go, Gary Bryant was was going to choose the other team. So uh, that's uh, that's that's basically I think what what, uh, what happened over there. But uh, yeah, I think that you can definitely draw a lot of comparisons between Buckley Shelton and and, and Gary Bryant. Uh, Buckley Shelton, just a classic uh, slot wide receiver, uh, somebody that doesn't wow you with his size, doesn't wow you with his speed, but a very deft route runner and just a bona fide playmaker. In in, in, in my opinion. And again, one of this one of those players that really came in with high expectations, and by all accounts, is fulfilling each and every one of those expectations when it comes to the ASU offensive staff. And really, the the X factor I think of this uh, ASU offense could be uh, uh, Johnny Wilson, who at six six uh, was uh, somewhat 
came as a hybrid tight end wide receiver, if you will. But I think at ASU, he's just going to really be a wide receiver, period. And as you can imagine, um, definitely somebody who has a, a great uh, catch radius. And uh, if you're looking for a, a red zone option, fade route, he's, he's definitely a guy over there. But I think what one thing that may surprise uh, people that he does, does have, have really deceptive speed for somebody who really is that tall. So uh, those are the other two wide receivers, aside from Frank Darby, who I expect to be the starters um, on Saturday. And Frank Darby has never been a number one wide receiver, as you mentioned. Brandon Ayuk was there last year, Bill Harry uh, two years ago, along with Brandon Ayuk for that matter. But uh, slowly but surely, Frank Darby is really carving a niche, carving a name for himself. And on the one hand, there's no doubt that that's going to be maybe the first wide receiver that any opposing defense is going to look to stop. But from everything we're hearing from preseason reports, I think that the young guys, such as Bunkley Shelton and Wilson, really can take a lot of pressure off of Frank Darby. And I'm not going to say he's going to be now a number two option in this ASU offense by by any means, but maybe just still uh, somebody that can operate with uh, more freedom just because he has very talented teammates that can command the attention of opposing defenses. Great stuff, and LV Bunkley Shelton was one of my absolute favorite prospects in that last class. I I watched him a bunch, and he just seemed to catch everything. Uh, And like you said, it's a true slot weapon that can do a lot after the catch, but uh, just really loves his hands. And um, USD was never really in on Johnny Wilson, but I also saw him a bunch too, and I kind of thought he would have to be a tight end at the next level, so it's interesting to hear that he's he's working as, as a wide out and It'd be fun to see both those guys in action after seeing them as high school prospects. Let's go over to the defensive side. And you mentioned the co-defensive coordinators, Antonio Pierce and Marvin Lewis. Obviously, uh, a lot of NFL uh, flavor on on that staff. What has been your take on Marvin Lewis's impact so far? And I know you didn't get to watch camp like we haven't here, but uh, how do you think the the, the team is taking to him and, and his experience from the NFL level? Yeah, I think that uh, basically he is running an NFL scheme. And, and look, I know maybe some ASU fans and maybe some non-ASU fans are sick of hearing about Arizona State's pro model, but <laughs> it could serve sometimes as a vicious drinking game if you think about it. But on the same hand, when you have a defense that has constantly been shown clips from the NFL and can see similarities between the schemes that you see on Sundays, to the schemes that they're going to run on, on Saturday, I think that really just ignites and really re- re- reinvigorates this this ASU defense. Um, I, and I know that USC is is about to run the, the same scheme that ASU ran for the last two years in the in the three three five. So I, I don't mean this next says it's to come as a slight um, against the USC defense, but I just know from experience from 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 being a beat writer here in Tempe is that the three three five especially in 2019, really exposed um, some deficiencies in the overall pass defense for Arizona State, but I would really pin it more to the lack of pass rush rather than just having a secondary that, that, that was deficient. And I, I think more than anything, the defensive line is really excited now to go to a more traditional four-man front, and I think consequently the linebackers uh, behind this defensive line who now have more freedom and more opportunities uh, to, to operate and be effective, and especially the secondary, who by all accounts is seeing a more consistent pass rush than they did in 2019. I think that's what really 
excites uh, them overall about this scheme. So, uh, again, the proof is going to be in the pudding not only November 7th, but really the entire season, whether this pass rush for ASU really, really turned the corner. But, again, to answer your question, I mean, what, what really is going to be the difference or what really excites everybody involved about uh, about this ASU defense and its new scheme under Marvin Lewis and Antonio Pierce is really just the increased capabilities at pass rush for this Sun Devil unit. And if, again, if that's something that really can come to fruition, uh, then as I think I mentioned earlier in our conversation now, I think that this uh, ASU defense will go down as one of the best we've seen, uh, not only this century, but uh, definitely just been a long, long time in Tempe. But again, if the onus really is really going to fall on this defensive line, I think they're going to be uh, pretty stout against the run. But again, if the pass rush can improve uh, to a degree that you really can see a true difference between uh, 2019 and, and this year, um, this can definitely be a special a special season for ASU. Uh, high expectations. Let's start up front there. I guess the, the one name that, that jumps out to me is, you know, I went through and did our preseason all Pac-12 picks last week and was researching all the linemen because I always forget from year to year, you know, who's back, who's good. Jermaine Lole at defensive tackle. Um, just kind of tell me about how important he is up front and then who was really uh, key around him. Yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head. Uh, Jermaine Lole, uh, who played outside in the three-three-five scheme uh, for, for the last two years, is now going to play a defensive tackle for, um, three technique and the, the coaches are really, really excited about this uh, role change for Jermaine Lole. They feel that uh, he can, not that he was by all, by by any means average in 2019, but they feel he can do a lot of damage from that interior position. And again, by all the preseason feedback that I'm getting, he could be maybe a, a, a poor man's Will Sutton uh, for ASU. And I know those are huge uh, shoes to fill when you talk about a back-to-back uh, Pat Tillman, Pac-12 defensive player of the year but he's definitely that that uh key player that can really make the entire def- the entire defensive line go but another key player that i feel and again not to belabor the whole pass rush aspect over here is tyler johnson who was uh, the team's be- best pass rusher from last year and i don't think he really lost that title uh com- coming into 2020 really played mostly linebacker in his asu career and now maybe in a more natural position at defensive end i think uh is somebody that can really um really really be effective and some people think that a really big year by tyler johnson could maybe even prompt him to declare early for the nfl draft we're not even close to that uh, uh, bridge right there but but that's something that's that's been discussed in terms of the potential that tyler johnson can bring to the table at nose tackle you have uh, dj davidson and just by definition of this position, it's one of those roles that uh, if you're usually talking about it, it may not be in positive terms. Right. But uh, but that's uh, but that's somebody that uh, the AC coaches again have uh, talked about uh, a player that made a, a good a really sizable jump from from 2019 to, to 2020. Um, I think they maybe the biggest question mark would be at the other defensive end uh, position. I know Shannon Foreman. Well, on the one hand is a veteran, on the other hand is a lineman that really bounced back and forth uh, between the tackle and end positions in his ASU career. Uh, is somebody who um, I'm definitely in a big, big time wait and see mode. But as far as the other other three linemen for for Arizona State, I think there's uh, definitely some genuine excitement, and and we've seen uh, those players at one point or another really rise up to rise up to the occasion. 
now all uh, now for now for all three of them to really play at a higher level to really take the next step as upperclassmen now uh, that's what i'm really really curious to see and uh, again uh, there's, there's definitely a, a potential there there's a scheme that by all accounts is going to fit uh the, their skill set and much better than it did in the last couple of years and um again we'll have a chance uh, as early as saturday to see how all that uh, materializes for ASU. And then uh, at linebacker, what's the overall outlook for that unit? Yeah, but with Myrtle Robinson, uh, he's this one player that uh, unfortunately, um, I'm not going to say epitomized the, uh, the the sophomore slump, but when you look at his overall production, uh, whether it's in the statute or the game film, uh, you can see definitely a player that, uh, you know, won freshman uh, defensive player of the year in the Pac-12. And in the sophomore campaign, uh, definitely uh, had some struggles. Uh, I think that uh, right now, when he's going to be, instead of moving inside and uh, inside and outside the linebacker position, now he's going to be as a, as a station. I wouldn't say a stationary outside linebacker, but definitely play much more often there than in 2019. I think that's his best uh, position for position for the ASU defense. And, um, yeah, I mean, he's he, on the one hand, he, he's definitely the player that is probably going to make the whole linebacker group go. But at the same time, I don't want to take anything away from from, from Darren Butler, who was, was one of the leading tacklers uh, on this team for the last two years and that middle linebacker. Um, again, just playing in a more natural position, not moving inside and outside like he did last year, I think it, bring, it can really bring a lot to the table. The third starting linebacker, um, outside linebacker, Kyle Sole, is a name that's, I'm sure would be unfamiliar to a lot of Pac-12 fans, and honestly, even for ASU fans, uh, some uh, people may not recognize that name all that much. Uh, he's somebody that's, that's been stu- uh, stuck in the depth chart on the one hand, but on the other hand is somebody that Antonio Pierce has continually sung the praises of in the last two years, and now as a as a starting uh, outside linebacker, first-year uh, captain on top of that, uh, is somebody who... Um, Again, I think just like just like about Frank Darby, maybe um, enjoying the attention that other players are going to command uh, to be a playmaker himself. I, I think think Kyle Sole is somebody that, when you look at a when you look at a scouting report, uh, is going to be much lower on the chart, if you will, compared to Merlin Robinson and, and even Darren Butler. So that's uh, one linebacker that uh, I think can really sneak up uh, on um, on players and on teams if they're not if they're not ready for him. Uh, this uh, this linebacker group is definitely one of the best ones uh, we, we, we've seen in Tempe from top to bottom. And uh, I, I know that the expectations, especially of Antonio Pierce, who's also the linebacker's coach, are really, really high out for this group uh, to, produce, to produce at a higher level and definitely at a higher level than it did in 2019, which was uh, somewhat disappointing for this unit overall, especially for Robertson. And then lastly, maybe the most intriguing matchup with USC's depth at receiver and their aggressive passing attack is what Arizona State has in the secondary. And so obviously names that USC fans know, Jack Jones, I think had a great season there last year. And Ashari Croswell at safety is certainly one of those guys who's on a lot of the preseason teams and getting some nice pub entering the season. Overall, how does the secondary shape up for Arizona State? Yeah, in terms of experience and proven talent, uh, it's a uh, it's a unit that I, I haven't seen in ASU in in, in quite a while. Um, you have uh, starting opposing Jack Jack Jones at cornerback uh, Chase Lucas, and you know you, you and I covered the Pac-12 for a while, and and I, I think we could both say that it's it's rare, and then probably the most unforgiving position in all college football, uh, being a Pac-12 cornerback, right. to see see somebody like Chase Lucas as a fourth year starter at that role and it definitely was never 
a case of uh, just being the lesser of, of two evils when when he was throwing somebody like Lucas, but uh, he's somebody who some who some fans may recall was actually the only underclassman in, on the old Pac-12 team back in 2017. He was on the second team uh, back then. Uh, did did have a rough uh, 2018. 2019 started to bounce back, and and when it comes to him and Jack Jones, I think that that's a tandem of cornerbacks that the ASU coaches would gladly put against against anybody in the conference. Again, there's a, a lot of talent, a lot of experience out there, and granted, uh, the the biggest uh, test of the whole season comes already in Week One right. when the, when, the, when when they play USC. But but it, but I, I think that the ASU coaches feel comfortable with those two players. Um, out there uh, being the one with the unenviable task to uh, stop the likes of London, Bonds, Sam Brown, McCoy, and so and so on and so forth. Uh, at safety, uh, as you mentioned, you have Ashari Quasrell, who, uh, much like uh, Tyler Johnson, is a player that I can see uh, if they do have a, a very good 20, uh, 2020 season that they could declare early for the, early for the NFL draft. But Quaswell uh, came in as a four-star prospect, so maybe people were not too surprised uh, by uh, by him being a mainstay on the starting lineup ever since ever since his freshman year, but um, but but somebody who really has gotten better and better uh, each and every year. Um, uh, athleticism was never was never an issue, but just uh, being um, adjusted to the, to the college game uh, was a process. But I think a process that maybe at times is moving slowly, but is definitely moving in the right direction. And I expect him to be one of the top safeties uh, in, in the conference. And next to him, uh, Evan Fields, uh, a senior safety, who is somebody that uh, maybe has kind of flown on the radar with uh, the bigger, flashier names around him, but uh, somebody who, um, anybody watching him play from 2018 to 2019 is definitely one of the most improved players on the on the ASU defense. And now as a senior, I expect him to take his game uh, to, to another level. And uh, he's somebody that played that uh, center fielder safety, if you will, in the three-three-five system, but the but the move to strong safety, by all accounts, uh, really has not affected him um, at all. And again, with all the talent around him, uh, definitely more conducive for him to make plays. I think that uh, one name to keep in mind that I don't know if he's going to grab the starting position from Croswell, but definitely somebody I expect to see a lot on Saturday is graduate transfer from Boise State, DeAndre Pierce. And yes, he is the son of Antonio mm-hmm. Pierce. One right. uh, I, I think of uh, seven players, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that uh, on the SU roster that did play at, at Long Beach Poly at one point or another, which you know should not come as a big surprise with Antonio Pierce being the head coach there back in the day. But uh, DeAndre Pierce, uh, just somebody, by virtue of being as experienced as he is, I definitely bolsters an already experienced and talented uh, if, if, if ASU secondary that, that much more so um, I mean I would argue that uh, the ASU secondary on paper is the group that you probably have the most confidence in the one that probably exhibits the least holes uh, if, if, if you will but uh, again there's no doubt whatsoever that they're going to have a huge task against USC if they're successful against USC I think the, the already high level of confidence that ASU fans and coaches have concerning this group is just going to grow in, in, in infinity-wise after after Saturday. So I'm really, really curious to see how the secondary does face against a very potent uh, USC passing attack. But again, in terms of talent, experience, uh, I don't think that ASU could ask uh, for more than they have with this uh, starting lineup we'll see on Saturday. 
Well, that was an exceptional breakdown. It's it's a really intriguing matchup for many reasons. I think we covered all the storylines. Obviously, can't let you go without a prediction. Um, I think we, we both agree, I think uh, most people agree, that this game could set the course for the Pac-12 South race. What is your best guess as to what kind of game we get and what kind of outcome we get on Saturday? Yeah, I think uh, it, just to some extent we, we, we're all going to get a shootout. I mean, I don't think it's going to be in the, in the 40s or, or anything like that, but I think that uh, by and large uh, we're going to see long stretches of the game where both defenses may, may have a hard time uh, stopping the, uh, the, the the opposing offense at, at, at one, uh, one time or another. Uh, I think that the fact that uh, USB while on the one hand uh, was not um, quote-unquote cursed as much as the Northern California schools or even the Oregon schools by having a very interrupted and maybe at times non-existent preseason preparation uh, is still a school that maybe uh, did not have as much preseason preparation as Arizona State who had by far the most uh, spring uh, sessions out of all team, out of any team with, with seven uh, did have an uninterrupted uh, preseason um, altogether, which really, for a team, as you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, just being uh, crucial in having as much preparation as possible with having to, uh, new schemes on, on both sides of the ball, uh, really, really benefited from uh, for the preseason structure that they had. And I think ultimately that just may, may, may be the difference uh, in, in this game. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not oblivious to the fact that, that ASU is running a new defensive scheme themselves, but uh, but but I do feel that uh, maybe um, USC uh, trying to really have a def- a defensive scheme that is very very different than what they ran in 2019. They may have more hiccups along the way, if if you will, com- compared to ASU. So I think this is going to be a, a, a true a true nail biter uh, with ASU coming on top, 31 to 30. That'd be fun. It'd be a fun game, not for USC fans with the, with the outcome, but the score. Uh, uh, I think we're pretty much in agreement that it's going to be close, it's going to be competitive, and that there will be a lot of points scored on Saturday. And, man, just uh, just ready to actually watch a, a football game in the Coliseum. So, uh, oh, thanks so much for your time. That was uh, exceptional uh, insight. We really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Ryan. And that is our show. Again, the Trojan Talk podcast will be back weekly on Mondays during the football season, every Monday, Max Brown and I will break it down, recap the previous game, preview the next game. Uh, he'll give us the analyst's take, and we'll dissect every angle both ways every week. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to some great coverage on Trojansports.com leading up to this opener Saturday and through the weekend. Join us, be with us, and get on the Trojan Talk message board and share your thoughts. As always, thanks a lot.